You're listening to Hear Arizona. Addressing issues, empowering our community. Hi, my name is George Hammonds, and I'll be reading the original poem, Downtown Phoenix, 1959. This is not one poem. It is a part of every poem that I have ever known. It's a long walk in the hot sun. It's concrete and heat. It is my shoes melting on my feet. This is a trip downtown with all of the old storefronts and the sights and sounds. It's Indians in front of F.W. Woolworth's Five and Dime. It's Indians sitting on handmade blankets with silver and turquoise jewelry, moccasins and artifacts, mysterious, curious things for sale. It's Indians sitting patiently, not talking, not laughing, not even sweating, otherworldly. It's like they're not really here, but here they are. And I, a child, don't understand their pain. I don't understand their shame selling artifacts. You see, I want to know what it is that TV's cowboys and Indians hasn't told. I want to show that I love their bright colored clothes. I want to be their friend, but they never look at me. Somewhere here too are sunburnt prophets, shouting on the street corners, hollering about hell, sweating and hollering, scaring me with their insane accusations about sins. And I, a child, don't even know what sins are, but they always seem to look right at me and holler in a tone that's like a muffled horn with muted tones, hollow, not hallowed. I think that they are evil. I think that they are sins. I think that they are devils, mad about hell. I think that they want hell to come just so they can say, I told you so. Thou holy son of God, I adjure thee by God, torment me not. This is what I know about the heat and the concrete and the melting shoes on my feet. This is what I know about Indians and street corner prophets. And also this poem says that I know that when you are black and downtown, and it is 1959, you don't take chances or anger anyone. You are humble to the point of ignorance. You stand and wait silently until the salesman is ready to wait on you, until they are ready to take your money. But you know that they ignored you just to show their scorn for you, and you accept it and give them your money and go on silently. At home, you might say, oh, I almost told them. But the fact is you didn't. And I, a child, not used to not saying what I think, want to make them notice me. But my grandmother says that they might kill us if I talk. So I, a child, not sure what killed would be, try to say nothing. The heat, the Indians sitting patiently, otherworldly, the sunburnt prophets shouting and sweating, praying for hell to come. My shoes melting on my feet. My grandmother's sidelong glance when I say, but mama, we was next. The hateful stare of the salesman, the reassuring grip of my grandma's hand, and the silence that saves us are all here, a part of me never to be forgot, a part of me still hot about downtown Phoenix in 1959. This is a poem 
but it's also a real-life account of the past. Phoenix, like the rest of the country and the world, has some ugly history when it comes to racism. But that history, and the history of exploited people all across space and time, has been covered up and hidden. Their voices have been silenced. But if we dig through the past, we can hear them again, through their art. On this episode of the State of the Arts podcast, the crucial role that art plays in uncovering obscured history, and how uncovering that history can aid in the challenge of creating a more inclusive present and a better future. The poem at the start of the episode was inspired by George Hammond's own childhood in Phoenix, and one person he shared that experience with was his sister, Clotie. Today, George lives in California, but Clotie lives where she grew up, in Arizona. And the Hammonds family has deep roots in the state. Clotie's grandfather migrated to Arizona in 1918. As she told me, he was... In the 9th Cavalry, stationed at Fort Huachuca, he was a Buffalo soldier. When he left the Army, he moved to what is now downtown Phoenix area and had a business. And he, he did quite well. Um, and uh, my father was born in Douglas when my, when my granddad was in the Army. My mother's family, in that recruitment from, of freedmen, a lot of them from Oklahoma, her family came out. And today, Clotie, a third-generation Arizonan, runs Emancipation Arts, LLC. I'm basically an army of one. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm an artist. I'm a curator. I'm an advocate. My mission is to raise the profile of Black artists in in Arizona. I've always had to curate whatever type of, of exhibition I wanted to do for particularly Black artists in this town to get seen almost anywhere. Either they have to be in tight with a corporation of some sort, or they, they just got to get up and do stuff for themselves. She works with nonprofit organizations like the Mesa Art Center, for example, where she curated an exhibition earlier this year. And for over 20 years, she's run the Emancipation Marathon, which features live readings of texts and other performances that commemorate the victims of American slavery and its legacy. During the pandemic, Clotie worked with Scottsdale Arts to broadcast the event through YouTube videos, including one featuring a trumpet performance of the song, Lift Every Voice and Sing, performed by local musician Gabriel Bay. Clotie said art has always been a part of who she is. In kindergarten, I attended Monroe School, which is now the Children's Museum. And I had my first one-woman show there. My my teacher at the time um, put up butcher paper on all the walls. I covered the walls, literally covered them all. And she invited the principal and all the big kids to come in to our gallery. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is me. And And today, in one of Heritage Square's preserved homes from the turn of the 20th century, right next to the Arizona Science Center and just across 7th Avenue from the old Monroe School where Clotie put on her first exhibition as a kindergartner, she has an exhibition dedicated to black history in Arizona. It's called The Great Migration, Indiscernibles in Arizona. And Clotie invited me to meet her there. I got there a few minutes before Clotie Hey, I'm Anthony. I'm here to meet uh, Yeah, I have 
In Met. I'm Kari Carlisle. I'm the executive director for Heritage Square Foundation. Kari started in her current role in 2019 and since then has been cognizant of the fact that, you know, historic house museums, they tend to have this perception that they're run by little old white ladies for little old white ladies. And, you know, we want to get away from just telling a very linear story. She said within her first couple weeks on the job, Clotie walked into her office and asked if she'd be willing to host Clotie's Indiscernibles exhibition. For her to just walk in that way, um, it was just like, yes. <laughs> it's just an automatic yes. It was an automatic yes, she said, because Clotie brings forward a history and culture most white people are never exposed to. And we're missing out. <laughs> white people are missing out on such a rich culture, but also not just a rich culture, but a full understanding of their history and what they were subjected to and how that impacts uh, them still today. When Cloti arrived, she asked me a very simple question. Um, and where are you from? Arizona. Okay. So who, who historically can you name that is probably the most famous and accomplished black person in Arizona? Um, Booker T. Washington was not from Arizona. <laughs> okay. That was pretty embarrassing for me, but it made me think. And that's the idea behind Clotie's work. When I'm engaging with someone, it's not because I want to put them on the spot, but I want them to think about what they know. When, when we say migrant worker, probably Hispanics come to mind for you. Okay. But black people were migrant workers. But how did we get left out of that history? In the exhibition is a photo of a painting Clotie did. It shows her great-grandmother standing in a front yard with a cotton plant. Behind her are desert mountains and saguaro cacti, and below her is a red line. We had a cotton plant in our front yard, and I did not understand the significance of that. And one day a man picked a piece of it, and he's walking down the street. And my great-grandmother, she was a tiny person, but she actually ran down the street, jumped on his back, and hit him on the back of the head till he dropped the piece of cotton. And so we all thought, hmm, well, that must be something important. I wonder if I could buy bubblegum with it. But One thing I did learn in school about Arizona history is the five C's of Arizona that drove the state's growth and economy. Citrus, cattle, climate, copper, and cotton. And what I learned in Clotie's exhibition, between 1915 and 1970, Arizona's black population grew from just 2,000 to 54,000. Many of them came to escape violent racism in other parts of the country. They were refugees, right, from what? Massacres, lynching, violence, um, keeping them in a condition of abject poverty, mm -hmm. which is what sharecropping was. And they were recruited to pick cotton. They were promised clean cabins, mm -hmm. and they were promised good conditions. What they found here was anything but, okay? They faced um, cholera, dysentery, tuberculosis. 
And when those workers got sick or had children, Clotilde said they could not easily go to the hospital because they were segregated. And that red line on her painting of her great grandma. And so this is an indicator of redlining, which means that we could not live north of Van Buren. No black folks. Here in Phoenix, right, uh, there were a lot of restrictive covenants. Restrictive covenants were legal clauses in home deeds that often specified only white people could live on that property. They contributed to housing segregation. And all throughout Phoenix's rapid 20th century growth and development, black residents were held back and hampered by all kinds of discriminatory practices like that. For example, Clotilde's father was one of the one million plus black Americans who served in World War II. But when the GI Bill, which promised home loans and free college, fueled growth in Phoenix, she said her father did not benefit from it. Okay, so when my father went to college, the family paid. That was the case for so many black veterans. Despite the bill, banks still wouldn't give them loans and colleges wouldn't let them in. This is the America in Phoenix Clotilde grew up in, the Phoenix her brother's poem portrays. And with this great migration came our music. But this is Arizona's King of the Blues, Big Pete Pearson. And Pete uh, came here from Texas. And I took this photograph here, and I had to go to 98th Avenue in Camelback to find a cotton field that didn't have industrial buildings in the shot. But that was the shot I wanted, and then superimposed this uh, guitar. When I showed the CD cover to Pete, he said, I chopped cotton in that field when I came here in 1952. And it was very much like a uh, uh, religious experience that told me you're on the right track. Big Pete Pearson is a legendary blues musician. He played with Ray Charles, B.B. King, Muddy Waters, and he still performs regularly in the Valley today. Through Big Pete's music and George Hammond's poem, through art, you can feel the history. You can get some sliver of a sense of what it would have been like and felt like to live in a society that dehumanized you because of your skin color. And this looking to art for historical insights, it's actually essential to understanding the perspectives of people who weren't in power. So um, it's only kind of relatively recently have historians turned to cultural artifacts like music to um, make sense of history. This is Dr. Rachel Donaldson. And I'm an associate professor of history at the College of Charleston. A lot of Dr. Donaldson's work has been at this intersection of art and history. Not art like Leonardo da Vinci, but the art of everyday people. People who have historically been left out of the story. And that's really kind of post late 1960s, early 1970s, when historians became more interested in, again, people who had been left out of the historical record, people of color, women, the working class. For centuries, history has been told by those who write books. And as we know, the vast majority of people do not write books. What music, a resource like music can do is it gives us um, access into understanding history from the ground up. 
or, you know, grassroots history. So with music and cultural artifacts, we can uncover the firsthand stories of the working class, people of color, immigrants, and through these stories, we can better understand where people in our current world are coming from. You know, we can understand how the, the intersections of the past form contemporary identities today. Tell me why did you break my heart? And another thing that became clear talking with Dr. Donaldson and Clotie, history can't be taken for granted. It's not automatic. If we don't proactively work to uncover stories from the past and bring them to the people in the present, they'll be lost forever. And so will their lessons. That's why I hate the term revisionist history, because all history, I feel like, is revisionist. You know, you're constantly changing as, as new information comes to light, as you're becoming more inclusive and, and, you know, getting more voices represented. That's going to change our understanding of the past. Putting more voices into our understanding of the past. That is exactly what Clotie's exhibition does. She told me that when people see it... Invariably, they come away with something that they didn't know before. And if I'm super lucky, they'll come away with... Uh, even if it's slight shift in attitude and a desire to learn more. Clotie told me that as a younger adult in Arizona, she experienced a lot of racism. She was treated unfairly at work, for example, passed over for promotions she deserved. She moved to California and she flourished there as an artist and professional. But she came back to Phoenix to help her son when he had a child. Statistically, blacks make up 4.5% of the population here. How is that possible that, that it, it remains such a small number? How is that possible? And so people don't stay where they're not treated well. Phoenix is not the welcoming place we would like to believe. I mean, Since she's been back here, she's worked hard to make Phoenix a more welcoming place by spreading art and stories from the past. And she said she's seen some arts organizations make strides towards becoming more inclusive, like Scottsdale Arts, Heritage Square, and the Arizona Commission on the Arts. I've done some work with the Arizona Commission on the Arts. You know, we had sort of a, a conflict uh, a couple years ago, and I brought some things to their attention. The Arizona Commission on the Arts is the state government's arts agency. It's primarily responsible for distributing money that the state legislature allocates to the arts. One of the things that I challenge them to do is create an equity statement. Give yourself a hard, hard look. Look at your board of directors. Look at the selection process for for grants and programs, and, and they have done literally all those things and created action items. Recently, they announced a slew of 24 winners of grants of $5,000. The artists on the list are from all over the state. There are zine makers, documentarians, puppeteers, and painters, and one of those grant winners is... Dominique Hawley. I'm 27 years old. I'm a local musician that grew up here in the Valley. I'm probably more well-known locally as uh, the founder and director of the Driftwood Quintet, which is a local chamber music group. We play a lot of schools. We collaborate with different arts organizations in the Valley. Dominique picked up a clarinet in third grade and joined his elementary school band, and he's stuck with it ever since. When it came time for college, he went to ASU to study clarinet performance. Dominique is black, and learning about the history of classical music in America and Europe, he was fascinated and energized. But he was struck by what was missing, and he developed a passion for like underrepresented composers, and like even more so like black composers and black music, because classical music 
is generally um, about like European composers and that um, cultural history. And it's really good. It's really full and it's really fun to play that music. But sometimes it's, it's, it's fun to play stuff that um, relates to you on a more personal level, you know. When I was in college, I started researching more about how my own like black history has um, intertwined or been affected or had an effect on classical music, which was, which was stereotypically European. And so he went down this rabbit hole in his free time, digging into big reference books and poring over online databases, slowly but surely revealing material he wasn't getting in class. He found people like William Grant Still, who um, had a big effect on Gershwin sound, you know, or you don't hear about people like uh, Samuel Coleridge Taylor, who was one of the first composers to actually start using spirituals, like uh, Negro spirituals in classical music. So I was amazed to find this whole, almost like a subculture of uh, classical music. And I say subculture because like no one, at least for where I was at, was really being taught about it. And it's been there all along and it's been very strong. And his grant from the Arizona Commission on the Arts will allow him to continue this work. The project itself uh, is called Blurred Lines. And for my project, I'm going to be looking at how I can take classical music and try to blend it more with um, African-American musical practices. These, these genres of music are oftentimes forms of segregation themselves. You know, There's, they say jazz music is like music that black people play. It's in clubs. It's not serious. Classical music is in concert halls. It's important. It's relevant, you know. I mean, that's why you see a lot of musicians like uh, Roland Kirk. He didn't call it jazz. He called it black classical music. One thing he's doing is searching for lost or forgotten pieces of music. So these pieces that I'm going to be looking for are uh, pieces by black composers that a lot of these pieces have not been played. They haven't been performed. Like if I listed the names, most people wouldn't even know they existed, you know. One composer he's particularly interested in is Ed Bland, who passed away in 2013. According to his website, Bland's music is a combination of three musical traditions, European, African-American, and Western African drumming. He has 10 monthly listeners on Spotify. That means exactly 10 people in the whole world listen to his music on Spotify each month. Uh, there's a piece of his called Four Corners for clarinet and piano. Um, and it's, it's a really from what I can see from the score, it looks like a really great piece, but it's never been professionally recorded. I've never heard it performed. I can't find any recordings of it online. And so to get that sheet music for this long lost Four Corners piece, Dominique got in touch with Ed Blaine's surviving wife. Who is a, um, a professional writer, runs his estate kind of, but she's not a musician. So when I got the score for her for this Ed Bland piece, I think it was, she sent me like the clarinet part separate and the piano part separate. So I'd like email it, I'm like, hey, um, do you have like a version of this? Whether like, it's like both of them together or something. Um, and she had to like go back and look for it and find it and she was able to find that. Um, but it's just like a lot of like nitty gritty work like that. And so now he could play this piece at a concert solo or with his Driftwood Quintet. He said the group does a lot of performances for school kids in the public at places like the library or botanical gardens. They're in the process of becoming a nonprofit so they can benefit from more grants and bring this rare music to more people. Dominique is like an archeologist searching for lost artifacts and giving them new life, saving them from extinction. 
It's pretty easy to imagine that if he didn't have Ed Bland's wife dig up the music for Four Corners, it would never be performed again. It would be lost forever. Now, Dominique can keep it alive, playing a kind of blurred genre music that more people can relate to. When we play music by Black composers, um, a lot of the times it can inspire a more diverse audience, you know, because um, if people can relate to the experiences happening on stage, um, they want to be part of that, you know, they don't, because Bach and Mozart and stuff is really great music, um, but sometimes you just want to go to out to a show and relate to what you're seeing, what you're experiencing. And when you go to a performing arts center and they do um, multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary work, you get to learn and experience things you didn't know. You get to see history, you get to see present and potential ideas of future in the way in which different cultures present that on stage. This is Taniqua Broughton. I serve as the executive director for the State of Black Arizona. The State of Black Arizona is a nonprofit organization that produces reports full of data shedding light on the issues facing Black Arizonans. And before her current role, Taniqua worked as an arts organization administrator, and she still works as a consultant supporting nonprofits in arts and culture in other areas. She said when arts organizations feature the work of diverse artists, it's not just beneficial for the people who can finally see someone like themselves on stage or in the museum. It's important for people who don't have that identity or come from that culture because it provides the opportunity to say any of the biases that I've had or stereotypes that I might have thought were real. We, we get a chance to really sometimes experience that through the arts. You begin to change the hearts and minds of people through the experience of the art, and that begins to change behavior. And so since art does have this great power to change hearts and minds, it's really important that arts organizations are using their platform, like Heritage Square, to amplify the kind of work that breaks through biases and stereotypes and allows people to tell the stories that have been silenced. And Taniqua agrees with Cloti about the Arizona Commission on the Arts. It's looked at um, underrepresented people as well as rural communities. That's where the commission has done well is um, is listening. And most people don't want to do that. Most people want to tell you what communities need. How are you going to tell me what a community needs and you have no connection to the community? I spoke with a number of people who work at the Arizona Commission on the Arts, and I thought it would be interesting and informative to feature them on the podcast so they can share what has sounded to me like an inclusivity success story. How did they do it? How can other organizations do it? But talking to them and Taniqua and everyone else I've spoken to for the past couple episodes, it became clear that there are no hard and fast steps for success. It's not about PR, looking good or saying the right things. It's not about just responding to the racial reckoning that's happened in the last year plus. It's more about why do you want to do this? What's the imperative for doing it? In the end, the Arizona Commission on the Arts told me in an email that the organization did not feel comfortable having its voice in the podcast. The people that worked there didn't want to take attention away from the artist, and they didn't want to seem like they had it all figured out. They don't. They're just doing their best. But it seems like their heart's in the right place. They're listening, learning, challenging preconceptions and stereotypes, and trying to be more empathetic and welcoming. Ultimately, I see our history giving us a better lens to make 
uh, better decisions for the future. So it's not about blame, shame, or guilt, or grief. It really truly is about saying we have to accept where we've been to be able to have a better tomorrow. A better tomorrow doesn't come by saying we just forget where we were because that what that says is that those individuals who we haven't been able to bring along will continue to not be brought along. Um, and that's no one person's fault or race's fault. It's the reality of our history. You just listened to an entire podcast episode on the arts. So obviously this issue carries some weight for you. To learn more about the organizations we profiled and the issues they face, visit our website, hearearizona.org. That's H-E-A-R Arizona. Tell all your friends to check us out too. They can search for Hear Arizona on their favorite podcast listening app, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, NPR One, Spotify. And since we're all about empowering our community, We want you to be a part of the conversation. Follow Here Arizona on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This podcast series is made possible by a grant from the Virginia G. Piper Charitable Trust. Here Arizona is a production of the Division of Public Service at Rio Salado College, which includes Sun Sounds, Spot 127, KBOC, and KJZZ. Special thanks to the State of Black Arizona, Clotie Hammonds, the Heritage Square Foundation, the Arizona Commission on the Arts, and Dominic Hawley for their help with this episode. The music in this episode was by me and the artists featured in the episode, including the Driftwood Quintet. This episode was produced, written, directed, and hosted by me, Anthony Wallace. Linda Pastore is our executive producer.